Good morning. I love, I love <coughs> that we are just so communal and we love to hang out and get to know each other. Uh, and so I hate interrupting that moment, but um, welcome again. Uh, so this week was, has been a little bit interesting, uh, not only just for ourselves and our own lives, but for our country. Uh, and with a new president, with, with all that's going on, um, there's lots to be processing and thinking about. Uh, and I thought this week has been so incredible because on Monday, uh, we, had, we celebrated the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And then on Friday, we had our inauguration. Uh, and then yesterday, there was a big march, a women's march in Seattle. Uh, and so for a lot of us, uh, there's a lot of mixed emotions uh, in, in this place. Uh, and no matter what, and this is what I love about being, being united and being one through the, through the blood of Jesus, is that no matter who you voted for, no matter what spectrum, wherever you land on the political scale, uh, no matter what a leader that you affiliate yourself with, that even in the midst of our differences, and I love this part, even in the midst of our differences, we sing and we pray and we worship to the same resurrected Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that first and foremost, that we are considered children of God, of the kingdom, rather than any kingdom of this earth. And so this week has been interesting because those of you, uh, many of you guys know that Bethany in West Seattle, we are connected to six Bethany's. And what happens is on Tuesdays, all the pastors of each location, we get together uh, and we start deriving a sermon together. And throughout the week, we, we work on that sermon. And so for those of you that have been with us, we're on this, uh, this sermon series called, uh, Can You See It? And we talk, we're talking about the Beatitudes. And so we've talked about blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, and today, uh, it's supposed to be blessed are those who are meek. And, but I thought that our community, uh, Bethany West Seattle, is really unique. And that, yes, uh, you know, we, we've prepared this sermon, and, and it's a sermon that we, we can all hear and we should all hear. At the same time, with everything that was going on, I'm thinking, I think our community needs to hear something different. And, and so on Friday, I actually had to, I got to preach at, at our event called Sing, uh, where all churches meet at Bethany and Green Lake uh, in a time of worship. And, and, I, and I did a teaching on what, what does it look like for us as a community to be in uh, this season of, of, of division, really? and of arguing, and about putting each other down, and of hatred. And, and that's, this comes from all spectrums of the scale. And so last night, and even two nights ago, I had two sermons in front of me. Do I do, I do the blessed or the meek? Or do I listen to this tug that I've been feeling about how we as followers of Jesus Christ should and must respond in this season. And I woke up this morning, and, and even as I was thinking about it, I was stressing out. I woke up in the middle of the night. What do I do? What do I do? I was literally two, th- two sermons in front of me, and I'm just praying over it. And I really feel like our beautiful community who cares so much about God's love, about God's compassion, about God's justice, 
that I'm going to veer off a little bit, so forgive me. But I do believe that this idea of being uh, meek is actually included in this. So let me just pray, and that's what we'll be talking about. God, thank you so much that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, and for many in the midst of, of joy and celebration, that we can be one in this room together. So God, we pray for your spirit of humility, for understanding, for patience with one another, for love and compassion for each other that we are united through you and you alone. We thank you in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. See, when we talk about this whole idea of division, especially due to a political figure or a political reason, what comes to mind is Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, and it's this line that a lot of us knows, uh, and it says something like this, that there's nothing new under the sun. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun. And when I think about this whole idea uh, of this season of just so much division politically, philosophically, uh, and whatever it is, Understand that this is nothing new. And now, this isn't me diminishing the implications of what's happening today, but what I am saying is that this has been happening since the beginning of civilization. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself was born into a very heated, volatile, uh, socio-political climate environment. The very world in the first century that Jesus was born into uh, was filled uh, with strife uh, and arguing and fighting in wars based on two political agendas or, or even more. And so when I say there's nothing new under the sun, there's so much we can glean from the life and the teachings of Jesus and how we as followers of Jesus should respond during this time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look together, and I'll just do uh, the sermon readings, is that we're going to have two places that we're going to look at. Uh, and first, again, it's Matthew chapter 5, 5, is blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to uh, 17, and let me just read this out loud for you. It says, then they, sent him to the, uh, then they sent him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he might say. And they came to him and said to him, teacher, we know that you are sincere and you show difference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And Jesus says, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me the denarius and let me see it. And they brought him one. Then they said to him, uh, whose head is on this? Whose title is this? They answered, the emperor's. And this is the important part here. And Jesus said to them, well then, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they were all utterly amazed. They were utterly amazed. 
See, to understand what's happening here in Mark chapter 2, which leads us into this idea of being meek in Matthew chapter 5, we have to understand the context of what's happening. There's basically two extreme opposing political leaders approaching Jesus. The Herodians, who says they should pay the emperor the taxes. And then there was another group, a religious group, but also a political group, the Pharisees, who says, no, absolutely not, we'll not pay the emperor the taxes. And so, as a matter of fact, these two political parties actually hated one another. They opposed one another. But the only thing that they had in common was this one thing, was that they both hated Jesus. That Jesus was a threat to both of their agendas. And so they went up to Jesus to, to trap him, as Jesus understood. And, and before they did that, they had to kind of butter him up. You know, they had to say, oh, Jesus, you're so great. Jesus, you, we know that you show partiality to nobody. Does that sound like a politician to you? And he says, Jesus, what should we do about these taxes? Should we pay him? Or should we not? And the answer that Jesus gives, whether it was a yes or a no, would pin him into this corner and and puts him in a no-win situation. A no-win situation. So you have to understand this. That, uh, first of all, tax or the taxation was the heated agenda of that day. Now, if I asked you this morning, and please don't say this out loud, if I asked you, what are some heated political agendas that we are facing today? I'm sure a lot of us would have different answers, and some of us would have very similar answers. During this time, no doubt, both parties would say the hot-button issue of the day is about taxation. It was about taxation. And because here's the deal. Uh, keep in mind that tax was the very tool that the Romans used to oppress the Jews. Because the Jewish people had to pay tons of taxes and and even higher taxes that would cut into their own livelihood. And and not only that, there was this coin, this denarius that they would pay this tax to. And on this coin, on this denarius, it had an inscription and an image. And one image was of the emperor. And on the back side of this image, there was this inscription that said, Caesar... Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, son of the divine. And so this coin was an offense to the entire Jewish culture and even a violation of the Ten Commandments, the Second Commandment in particular. And this word tax, uh, the particular tax here in Mark chapter 2, is this Greek word kensos. Kensos actually has this uh, uh, denotion of tribute. And so a proper uh, translation of this word tax in Mark chapter 2 would be the words tribute tax. And so for the Jews to give the tax of this denarius with this inscription saying that someone else is God and the picture, an icon, which is a violation of the second commandment, would be synonymous to saying, I pay tribute to this pagan culture. Uh, I submit to Caesar. And because you can't serve both gods. And, and so for the Jews, if Jesus uh, would have said, yes, pay the tax to Caesar, then the, the Pharisees would have said, aha, I got you. 
I got you. What you're saying, Jesus, is to submit to this worldly superiority, this worldly order, and not to God of the Torah, not God of the Bible. So if Jesus would have said, yes, pay the taxes, they would have said, yes, I got you now. You're not the true God that you say you are. You're not the true good teacher. You're not the Messiah because you're asking people to submit to this pagan culture and pagan gods. Yet, on the other hand, if Jesus would have said yes or or no, uh, do not pay Caesar the, the taxes, yes, he would have been popular amongst the Jewish uh, peers that was, was around him. But the Herodians, the other side, would have made sure that Jesus was arrested for rebellion against the government, which was a capital offense. So you see, both political parties gave them one option or the other. And they painted Jesus, put Jesus in this corner. And whatever he would have responded with would have given him a negative consequence. But Jesus is brilliant. We know that. And oftentimes when he responds to these binaries, he doesn't actually give them a direct answer that they're looking for. Jesus didn't fall into this trap uh, of this binary. Instead of latching onto one side or the other, he opted in true Jesus fashion a third way. So he was presented option number one, option number two. And instead of picking either, Jesus created his own, a third option, a third way. And by doing this, uh, and how he does this, he asks with the question, he says, whose image is on this coin? They replied, the emperor's, and Jesus responded, well then, give the emperor what belongs to the emperor, and give God what belongs to God. Now see, from plain reading, this is kind of the often proof text, or the go-to for, aha, separation of church and state. Caesar, or the government, uh, and the church. Keep it separate. And, And though that's a part of it, Jesus' reply here was very subversive. There was more than meets the eye. It wasn't just this whole idea of give Caesars unto Caesar and give God to what is God. It was actually a statement of conviction. It was a really, it was a big punch in the throat, actually. Because as the Herodians and the Pharisees, as they walked away, they would have had to ponder that response. Okay, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give God to what belongs to God. So then the obvious answer they had to ask themselves was, okay then, well then what does belong to God? And what does belong to Caesar? This was a big question. And as educated Jews and wealthy and resourced Jews uh, that they were, they would have understand this. They would have understood that everything belonged to God. That Everything on this earth, in this world, including their very lives, belonged to God. Everything. And so this question or trap that Jesus faced kind of backfired on them because he was saying, you spent all this time arguing amongst one another on different issues, but you know, both of you know, both groups, you should know that you were created in the image of God, and therefore you belong to God. And so to give what God, 
So to give to God what belongs to God, he's saying is, it's your life. It's your life. Forget about what you're arguing about. Forget about these spectrum of political differences. Yes, it matters. Yes, it's important. But right now, what I'm telling you is that you belong to God, and your submission is unto God and God alone. And that's it. It's not, what he's saying is your allegiance is not to any particular worldly kingdom, not a political party, not a human leader, but to God and God only. See, what he's essentially saying is that, see this coin? It's stamped with an image of Caesar. So, this is Caesar's. Give that to Caesar. But you, both of you, all of you, were stamped with the image of God. And that was a direct uh, correlation with Genesis 1, 20, chapter 1, verse 27, when it says we're all, as humanity, as humans, we were all created in the image of God. And so what's brilliant here is that Jesus doesn't pick a side. He doesn't pick liberal or conservative, Herodian or Pharisee, Democrat or Republican, one leader over another, and reminds both of these groups in a brilliant way that God is actually in control, God is the king, and God is the one that holds all things together. So in this time, especially in this time, today. No matter how you feel about the president, about political parties, about other leaders, about legislation, have hope in this, that God is in control. God is our hope. And it's God that binds all of us and everything together. And that belief, that understanding, that embrace changes everything. See, I, I talk a lot about my trip last summer to Rwanda. It, it's a, it was a life-changing experience. Uh, and not only because of the history that they've experienced and what they've been through, uh, but the formation of their lives as an outcome uh, of, the, of the genocide, the Rwandan genocide. And the most memorable uh, time that I'll never forget is actually talking uh, not just to the people we were working with, but to one of our drivers. I mean, one of our drivers and I, uh, we sat outside on a warm day, and, and he told me a little bit about his story. Now, one rule that we had going into Rwanda is that you never talk about the genocide. It's called a dark period that they just want to forget. They don't like to talk about it. Why would they? Millions of million, a million, almost a million people died in a matter of weeks due to a massacre. There was two tribes, Hutus and Tutsis. Hutus killed 800,000 Tutsis in a span of one month. This was a dark time. And this was in 1994. In the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago. And so when I was speaking with this driver, he was saying that when he was a teenager, he was 15 years old. And during this genocide, he saw his father and two siblings be killed right in front of his eyes. And I was honored to hear that story because we weren't supposed to ask, we weren't supposed to talk about it. 
And then he said how much anger that he was filled with, so much grief and mourning, and so much hatred towards the other. And I looked at him, I said, yeah, absolutely. I would feel the same way. But he said, Prentice, I, I'm, I'm a Christian now, and, and I forgive. And I said, I understand that. And that's incredible, and, and I admire such compassion. And then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, what changed my view was this. He said that political affiliations, Hutus and Tutsis, these tribal affiliations, were actually banned. A president came in, banned it. And he said, there's a saying, he says, there are no longer Hutus, there are no longer Tutsis, we're all Rwandan. No longer Tutsis, no longer Hutus, only one, we're all Rwandan. And I thought about that whole aspect, and I thought about that philosophy of, of there's just one. And I think about that especially now, that whatever political affiliation or leadership affiliation that we have uh, that causes so much division, what if we changed our paradigm and said, first and foremost, we're not a Republican, we're not a Democrat, we're not a fan of this president or, or, or a hatred towards this president or whatever it is. I'm not really here to talk about politics, though that's a big part of uh, the season that we're in. I'm talking about something that transcends even bigger than politics, which is the kingdom of God. And what if... What if in our own lens that we viewed one another as being part of the same kingdom, as part of the same image bearers of God rather than the other? What would that do? What if we're not Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian, or whatever it is in between, or non-affiliate, whatever, and instead we're all the image bearers of the creator God? And we're the son and daughters of the king of Jesus. I believe that would change everything. Everything. Because the beauty of God's kingdom is that it's big and it's diverse and it's creative. And it's not stuck in between these binaries, this dualistic thinking uh, of something that we're so inundated with. Uh, everything in our life, it's either this or that. You're in or you're out. You're conservative or you're liberal. You're a Democrat or you're Republican. Something is Christian or something is secular. And the danger of this, the danger of all these binary thoughts of this dualism is that whoever is on the other side of where you're at, we demonize. They're the villain. They're the bad guys. And we don't take the time to understand and to know the potential even hurt and the pain this person might be going through have, or have been through. And I do believe that it's out of our own fear, and myself included, our own desire for self-preservation. But God calls us to courage and to be brave, and to get uncomfortable. And when we take on this kingdom lens, we don't just see political affiliation. As a matter of fact, we don't see or judge or base somebody based on the color of their skin, their social or financial status. 
even what they believe in. We see their humanity. We see that they bear the same image, that we're both, all of us, stamped with the image, the beautiful, beautiful image of God. No matter how much you agree with them, no matter how much you disagree with them, we see that we are all stamped with the beautiful image of God. What I love about, Genesis, or about Jesus and his 12 disciples, out of the 12, there was Simon the Zealot, and there was Matthew the tax collector. In the real world in the first century, the zealots and the tax collectors were, again, from two very opposing political spectrums. They hated one another. They hated each other. They couldn't stand what one another stood for. But Jesus brings in even Simon and even Matthew to be on the same team. Now, I'm sure they had their own disagreements, and I'm sure that they had it out here and there. But at the end of the day, they were collectively part of the community, the intimate community that Jesus had for himself. I remember I said to a friend, even during this time of election, I said, man, do you realize that people are afraid right now? Now, whether you agree with that or not, or whether that's legitimate or not, that's not the question here. I get it. For me, the acknowledgement was, there's people genuinely afraid right now, and afraid for the next four or the next potential eight years. And the response, my good friend, whom I respect, said this. He says, yeah, people are afraid now, Prentice, but people have been afraid and hurt for the last eight years. Hmm. And sometimes we don't see the perspective of the other, whether we agree or not. But there's something about learning from one another that gets eliminated when we demonize them because they're on the other side. I may have shared this story before, but uh, I grew up in a Korean family. Surprise. Uh, and um, I grew up in a Korean church as a child. And so all of my friends growing up were Korean. That's all I knew. As a matter of fact, my first language was Korean. Uh, and, and all I ate was Korean food. Uh, and um, my first non-Korean friend were white. And they were my next door neighbors. Uh, and it was, I think it was probably in third grade that I started playing with them, like in the backyard. Uh, and I knew things were a little different. Like we, were, we played differently. We played with this different set of rules. And I remember there was a whole group of us playing hide and seek. And, uh, and we played at their house. Uh, and we're running around, we're running around. Uh, and the way that I played hide-and-seek was a little different from the way they played hide-and-seek. See, they, I mean, they were crazy. You can run outside and inside the house. Like, this was intense. And, and so, and I've played by those rules before. Now, the deal is, for me, anytime we're running outside and then we go inside with my Korean friends at the time, it would be like a force field right by the door. Because we would have to take off our shoes, obviously, <laughs> right? I, I mean, you would never walk into a house with shoes on. And so for my friends from my church, the Korean church I was at, we would know that if you are by the door, you can't tag them because they're taking off their shoes. That wouldn't be fair. 
And, and so I took those rules into my neighbor's house, and I was running around, I was running around, and then I, you know, I was going outside, and I went inside like a decent human being. <laughs> I sat down, and I was taking off my shoe, and they tagged me, and I was it. And I was like, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. I was taking off my shoes. And they were like, well, why would you do that? We're playing hide and seek here. This is one for all. Like, you got you to run. And I said, well, that's not the way I play because we would, never, we would never walk in the house with shoes on. And I'll never forget what happened. And I'm still friends with them to this day. They said, well, why wouldn't you? And they started asking me questions. Well, because we never wear shoes inside the house. Well, why? I don't know. That's gross. Oh, really? Oh, we do. Oh, maybe it was disrespectful. Well, they're just shaming on our culture. I, I mean, I didn't have all those words, but essentially, well, because my mom and dad said so, okay? My mom and dad said so. And then I remember Melissa, my next door neighbor, she said this Okay, everybody, there's a new rule. The new rule is if you're here, you have to take off your shoe and you can't tag anybody. And you can't tag anybody. And I didn't understand the significance. Uh, of my friend Melissa, who Caucasian, white culture, doesn't know, played by a different set of rules. I didn't understand the significance of what just happened right there until many, many years later. Is that after asking questions, though it was different, though it was weird to, to her, they said, you know, let's do that. We're going to play by those rules. It didn't hurt her. It didn't make her question her faith. Uh, she was still white. She didn't become Korean because of this. And nothing important for her changed. But what happened was that we became closer friends. And we understood one another better through that experience. What if we did that? Like those third graders that we were. Oh, understanding that, yes, it is important to latch on and cling on to the faith that we have in the resurrected Jesus Christ and the uniqueness of his death and resurrection. I will always unapologetically share with people my belief and my hope and my joy in that. And what if those that think differently than me, vote differently than me, I ask questions and I have serious curiosity, and we build friendships, I think we would all benefit. That person and myself, we would all benefit from understanding a greater diverse humanity. And I get chills just thinking about it because I think that that's, if we change that one thing, that would change our relationships and here is where I would say that Matthew 5.5, 5, I'm not just throwing this in here. It's very important that we understand this aspect. Well, start closing with this. It says, blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. For they will inherit the earth. Now, I talk about, well, what does it mean to be, to be meek? What does, it, what does it mean? What are some synonyms? And I really do believe here in the West, this word meek uh, turns into something that we don't want. It's something that we don't want to strive for. Uh, it, it, oftentimes it's translated as something weak. To be meek is cowardice, to be submissive. 
But a true understanding of this word meek, nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, this whole idea of meek denotes strength and discipline and control and courage. See, meek in the Greek is this word pros. It was actually a military word that was used that described a war horse. I don't know about you, but a war horse does not sound like a coward or weak or submissive. And and the reason why it was meek is because these stallions, they were trained for an intense battle. They had strength, they had power, they had discipline. And when they went into war, even out of training, that when they actually faced arrows and spears and torches, they didn't panic. It didn't stop them. They, they, they still stuck to the script. They still did what they were supposed to do under training. Nothing changed for them. They, did, they stuck to the plan. They were meek. That's what meekness was all about. And again, for us, Blessed are those, God is with you when we are meek. When we, yes, we do have our beliefs. Yes, we do have our convictions. And yet when we go into the world, when there's so much different things and people and adversary and and different agendas and different positions, that we can still go in. We can still love as God called us to love. We can still show compassion And yet nothing is changed in here because we're meek. We're rooted in our faith and our understanding of the resurrected Jesus. You know, yesterday I I did. I did go to the Women's March. uh, And people asked, how did it go? I said, it was interesting. I learned a lot. I observed a lot. I asked a lot of questions. There are things that I saw that I was like, yes, we need to fight for that. We need to really, really go for it. And we need to see that God is for this. And then I see other signs of, I would say, that are hateful. Uh, I saw pictures of women's anatomy. A lot of that, for whatever reason. Oh, well, I know a reason. There's some vocabulary that was used in some speeches. And yet, even in the midst of that, that didn't change who I was. It didn't change what I believed in. I was able to be there with both my faith and a desire to learn and to grow. See, there's this tension that us followers of Jesus Christ needs to be okay with. It's okay to name it. If there's injustice, if there's pain, if there's anger, we must name it. I'm, so what I'm saying, here's what, let me back up. What I'm not saying is, hey, let's just all get along, compromise. We're fine. Let's just hold hands and live a happily ever after life. No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm understanding that there's a tension and that I do believe that in Christ that we can live in this tension. And so it starts with naming it. yes. If there's anger, if there's injustice, if there's oppression, if there's marginalization, we must, as followers of Jesus, do our work by naming it. And there are things to fight about. There are things to debate. There are things to disagree with. There are seasons of lament and anger and grief. 
And yes, there's opportunities to vote and to take a stand on an issue. And yes, even advocate for certain people pursuing the things that you believe is right. Yes, there's a time and place for that. Yes, we should. Yes, that is important. And we understand that our citizenship is what the Bible calls it. Our citizenship is through Christ. And it's through Jesus that holds all of this together. And that through Jesus, grief and hope can sit side by side. Because a kingdom always has the last word. Kingdom always has the last word. So I would even say, to conclude on top of that, if your political affiliation contradicts your faith, if your affiliation or the person that you follow or the politics, I don't care what side you're on, if it contradicts your faith, your faith, I don't want to use faith trumps, your faith is above all. Your faith, your understanding of Jesus, your citizenship of the kingdom takes precedent. And so whatever you follow or whoever you follow, if it causes you to to hate, to be violent, and this is all parties, we need to take a better look at who and where our kingdom resides. What kingdom do we belong to? Because our calling is real simple. It's to love God and love our neighbor And who is our neighbor? Luke answers that with the story of the Good Samaritan. See, this is during the time where your neighbor, in the old ancient uh, understanding of neighbor, was just the person that belonged to your tribe. Nobody else. Your only neighbor was a person that was in the same tribe as you. That was your neighbor. But in Luke, with the Good Samaritan, Jesus shifts the entire paradigm. And he says, you want to know who the neighbor is? Because he says, to be a follower, you must do two things. Love God, love your neighbor. The question is, well, then who's my neighbor? And he tells this whole story about a robber uh, attacking somebody. And, and a priest comes by, leaves him alone. A Levite, probably for a priestly part, leaves him alone. And then a Samaritan comes by and takes care of him. And they say, which one do you think is the neighbor? The Samaritan. See, Samaritan was someone that was antithetical to the Jews. They were considered every, anything else but a friend. They were considered dirty, impure, unholy. And yet Jesus, the good Jew, the Jewish teacher, highlights the Samaritan out of all people as the hero. He said, that is your neighbor. Essentially, he's saying your neighbor is anyone and everyone, even the person that looks different than you, that thinks differently than you, that eats different foods than you, that plays hide and seek differently than you. It's the Samaritan. That is actually your neighbor too. And that is a calling for all of us. That when we understand that our kingdom resides not in these, any of these affiliations, Though we should, it's important to grasp onto our values and fight for what you believe in. Yes, I'm not saying to abandon that, but I'm saying our first and foremost kingdom is with God. And that changes our relationships. That changes how we view people and their humanities. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we 
respond. And we're going to respond a little differently today. And I had us do this at sing. <clears throat> I want to spend some time praying with one another. Uh, and I know praying out loud can be uncomfortable. And, and for you, if that's you, just say, I pass. No big deal. But I want you to participate in the prayers that we hear. Because praying and listening to people's prayer does two things. We pray collectively. And secondly, it, it helps us to understand what the person's heart is at. What they're praying for it might be different than what you're praying for. So as we gather into groups of five or six, just behind you, in front of you, I want to give you two prompts. The prompt, two prompts is this. Will you pray for the unity of our country right now? And second, maybe this is difficult for some of you, will you pray for our leaders? Yeah. Pray for our leaders. And so our worship team is going to play uh, some things to just help us uh, have our heart in the right place. But let's just break up right now into groups of four or five and pray for our country and pray for our leaders. <clears throat>